Voice of San Diego podcasts are sponsored by the Bob Nelson Charitable Fund, honoring the San Diego Harbor Police Foundation. Thanks for joining us for a Voice of San Diego podcast bonus episode. I'm Scott Lewis, CEO and Editor-in-Chief at Voice of San Diego. On Friday, we will still bring you the normal show as usual. But as the election ramps up, Voice of San Diego has been talking to candidates for some of the major races we're following, starting with the San Diego mayor's race. There are tons of uh, city council races and other things that we're going to have to wait till after the primary. But for some of these major races, we have talked to most of the major candidates. I sat down also this week with Assemblyman Todd Gloria, who's running for mayor of San Diego. Everything seems to have been going perfectly for him so far in this run, but there have been some major problems and some things I wanted to ask him about. I wanted to also hear his thoughts on how he'd solve the homeless crisis, solutions for San Diego's transit and transportation issues, and many other things about his career so far. Here's that chat with Assemblyman Todd Glory. Whenever people ask me how, like, what my prediction is on the mayor's race, they, and it comes up a lot, I'm always very hesitant to do predictions ever since I assured people that Donald Trump probably wouldn't win, or no, would not win. And that turned out to be wrong because I was wrong because he did win. I don't know if you saw that. Well, he didn't get the most votes, but yeah, he is president. Yes, he is president. Yeah. So I tell them, I say, look, I don't know what's going to happen. A lot of things could happen. But it seems like everything that Todd Gloria could have wanted to have gone right for him has gone right for him. The Democratic Party, Labor Council, um, all kinds of other people have endorsed uh, various unions. And, and so it seems like it's going really well. There's a whole take though when you're in in the lead of some sort of situation like that can get that can be a problem that can make it hard to run make it hard to stay motivated what are you doing right now do you feel that by the way or or how are you um approaching the race um i love the question and i think anyone who knows me well knows that i'm never content um never not uh working hard i mean i i you always have to approach these campaigns like you're 10 points behind. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, yeah, there's a lot of good data out there that suggests that this is going in the right direction from our perspective. Uh, but the only metric that matters is election day. And we still have several weeks to the primary, several months to the general election. Uh, and that's an eternity in politics. So, uh, you know, we're burning the candle at both ends to make sure that I get out there and meet as many San Diego voters as possible, explain to them the vision that I have for our city. Because uh, I think when we do that, uh, the data only gets better for us. Uh, yeah. So, yeah, I like to say I'm confident, but not overconfident. Uh, and we're not going to let up the steam, uh, uh, take our foot off the gas, uh, to use a car pun, yeah. uh, until uh, get it. until after election. <laughs> so one of the things I'd say after that is like, and also it doesn't seem like he'll lose the energy that you're always at every event you're you you're walking a lot you're speaking a lot you're fundraising <clears throat> do you have a life i i'm mean, serious I, yeah. I, somebody asked me the other day if you were dating someone i didn't even know are you dating someone yeah yeah okay. uh, i've been in a relationship for a few years okay uh, and he's wonderful and very forgiving of this life um but it is a fair question and i like to tell people a bit of advice that my mentor gave me congresswoman susan davis when i was just a baby staffer and and 
shared with her that I was considering running for the city council. And she was very encouraging and supportive of that as she's been throughout my life. I met her when I was 14 years old, but she said to me something that stuck with me because it is so true. This is not a job. This is a lifestyle. Uh, this is not Monday through Friday, eight to five. You know, you are always working. And, um, as someone who likes to work hard, it's not a problem for me. Uh, it can be problematic for friends, uh, for romantic partners, for family members. Uh, I don't feel like I'm as good an uncle as I'd like to be, mm-hmm. uh, or good as a son as I'd like to be. Uh, but my family knows what my passion is. They're actually incredibly supportive. They've come to like all the debates because they just love it. But uh, no, I, I wouldn't represent that I have um, a, a conventional life. Uh, I'm often increasingly at a loss for some pop culture references because I'm not, you know, at the movies a lot. I'm not streaming a lot of You can stuff. always check in with me. I'm very up to date with the latest. Do you understand why I follow you on social media, <laughs> yeah. right? Yes. Um, all right. Well, one thing I do have to ask that the, the, the one thing that didn't go right was very small fine you got from the Fair Political Practices Commission. And basically you had set up an account uh, for a potential run for assembly again, it was what you explained as an obligation that you have as a, a whip, is it now? You made it all the way to whip? The assembly majority whip, that's there me. There you go, at the assembly where you um, were going to raise money for the caucus. And uh, you had failed to file a distinction that said you are going to run for that office, which it seems like a, a paperwork error. But I think aside from the fine and everything, what, the weirdest part of it is that you ended up having to send a sheet in that said, I'm going to run for assembly when everyone knew you weren't. That's the only part that still is a little bit incongruous with like reality. And it seems like something weird. It seems like something that people would would understandably be not scandalized by, but just kind of like, that's just a bizarre function of politics. How do you explain it? Yeah. Well, as a perfectionist, you know, it's, it was, um, extremely frustrating. It continues to be frustrating. I don't like making mistakes, but I'm also human and and we made a mistake. Uh, for your listeners, I mean, it's a one-page, uh, one-sided form. It's pretty simple. There's not a lot to it. Uh, we filed everything else but this one form and it, it was an oversight. When it was brought to my attention, we corrected it right away, self-reported it, uh, immediately concluded the matter and it's now behind us. And, and what I've said before continues to be true to this day. As a member of the assembly's leadership, I have obligations to make sure that our candidates are well supported. Uh, I had some excess funds uh, from our 2018 election, um, and we are continuing to make sure that we're investing in races across California so that we maintain our majority in the legislature, as well as support other candidates. You know, I was strongly supportive of Kamala Harris's campaign uh, for president. Um, and by the way, I think these uh, opportunities are really important in these times, right? You know, we California is resisting uh, the Trump administration. We're standing up at a federal level, and we're trying to do this work at a local level. And uh, this effort uh, is completely legal. Um, we made a mistake. We fixed it. Um, but uh, Scott, yeah, as, as a perfectionist, it continues to to gnaw uh, 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 on me a bit. And uh, it probably always will be because this is the first time I've ever had to encounter anything like this in my entire career in public service. And so, um, yeah, it, embarrassing uh, behind us at this point, and we're moving forward. Was there any part of you or your team that was potentially strategizing or strategizing for the potential that that money could have been sent to a local Democratic Party and and help you in this race and in any situation? Well, to be clear, that would be legal. Um, But to date, we have not done that. Um, And I don't foresee needing to do that. Mm -hmm. Um, But, you know, it would be legal to do that. And uh, um, and that's that's what it is. Mm -hmm. 
but you know, at this point, I made it very clear to the speaker that you know, I'm while I am hoping to become mayor of San Diego, uh, I am again a perfectionist. I'm not going to phone in my last term in the legislature, uh, and that involves an engagement in politics that makes sure that we continue to enjoy the strong supermajorities that we have, so we can pass the cutting edge, progressive, first in the nation legislation that we've been doing. So this is all in furtherance of the job that San Diego has elected me to do to represent them in uh, Sacramento. Uh, and this helps me to be more effective uh, for our community. So it would be legal. Is there any, so it might happen, you might be able to bring that money or you might consider bringing that money in? It'd be legal to do it. I mean, at this point, I don't, I don't have any plans to do that. Um, I mean, it's, again, it's, it's possible, it's legal, it's allowable. Other candidates have done it, including candidates, uh, uh, who are running for office uh, this cycle. Sure. Um, so, you know, excluding me or not allowing me to follow the same rules that everyone else gets. I'm sorry, uh, who's doing it now? Well, I um, I believe that there are other candidates that are investing in the local party oh, right, um, with right. these these funds. So, um, you know, again, I, I don't think it's quite fair to have different rules uh, no, for, for certain, for particular candidates, i.e. myself. Um, but right now we don't, we don't have plans to do that. In fact, you know, that account is not, quite as robust as it once was because we've been <laughs> investing in folks and um, and candidly, we're doing well uh, raising funds into my mayoral campaign. People have been, I think, energized by this candidacy, are looking uh, uh, for a different approach to civic leadership here in San Diego and, and are investing in our campaign. And uh, it's overwhelming because you might imagine, you know, when you start one of these endeavors, you don't know if people are going to support you. You don't know if they're going to be go so far as to open up their, their checkbooks and to help you out. And um, you know, I'm not a wealthy person. Um, in fact, you know, as you may know, I'm the only tenant in the California legislature. Mm-hmm. Um, I do rely on people uh, seeing what I'm trying to accomplish and wanting to help me to do that. And so far in this marriage race, people have been doing that, and I'm very grateful. Good. Let's talk about a few things in Sacramento, and then and then come locally. So, one of the kind of surprises for me out of Sacramento is how much uh, momentum and discussion. AB5 still has. Uh, there's a tremendous amount of blowback, not only from tech giants like Uber and Lyft, but journalists, freelance journalists are fired up. Uh, artists are fired up. There seems to be, I, I've never seen a law sort of continue to be fought like this. I guess like there's been a several, 47, few others, but the they keep acting like almost like it's still open and it's been closed. It's It's a law in effect. Have you learned from the blowback from AB5? Is there any part of you that thinks it should have gone differently or needs to be changed? AB5, by the way, let me explain for the listeners. This is the law that says that if you um, are an independent contractor and a company wants to remain and keep you as an independent contractor, you you can't be providing a service, the normal service that that company provides a baker at a bakery, that sort of thing. And um, for journalists in that situation, you can up to 35 submissions per year. And there's a bunch of other exemptions. If you're a business, you can still serve another business, that sort of thing. But basically, if somebody's a baker at a bakery and they're, you know, they're being treated like a contractor, they need to be brought on the payroll as an employee. Now that can be flexible and stuff like that. Now the law artists and freelancers and others that are upset about it are worried about work that they're losing because the companies are afraid they're going to get sued. They're cutting them off. Uh, do you think it needs to be modified? I believe it will be modified at some mm-hmm. point. I mean, I think 
what has been challenging and what's been interesting to watch if for no other reason than, you know, I share office space with Lorena Gonzalez and so uh, my great colleague and, you know, we're here seeing, across the street, right across the street. We're yeah. neighbors here yeah. at the Voice of San Diego. Um, you're good neighbors, by the way, yeah. just well. for your listeners who are maybe curious. Um, the, uh, you guys are not. You're always having protests, parties. It's kind of a mess. <laughs> the website doesn't fill itself, though, right? right we got to right. do these things to right. give you something to write about. Um, here, here's the thing. I think um, there's a couple of pieces. I, I I feel as though yes, there are there are groups uh, of employees that um, you know I think we need to do some more work with. Um, certainly, the journalists. Um, there's some First Amendment issues in there that I that I find interesting. Interpreters have been another one that have. Uh, caught my attention um but here's i i feel as though people don't know what dynamex is right and don't understand that this legislation um even if it's imperfect or, or may have negatively impacted anybody um what they're experiencing was going to happen because of dynamex right and so the question becomes you know was the bill broad enough and there can always be an ongoing conversation the the, the best uh Example or relatable example I can give you is the California Privacy Act that we passed a couple of years ago. Um, and that legislation was a result of, of an initiative that we uh, sort of bargained against, um, put in some of the strongest protections in the nation uh, for California's consumer privacy. But on day one, there were a number of issues that were identified, and there's been follow-on legislation since to address them. And the challenge with AB5 at this point, as I see it, is that uh, in reaction, as you mentioned, there is a ballot measure uh, that is happening, and there's litigation that's happening. And I think that in some ways that inhibits the ability to go back and pass follow-on legislation because we don't know the outcome of either of those mm-hmm. things. And so where I would be interested in engaging in some of the conversation of, say, for example, artists, right? There is a fine art um, exemption in AB5. Um, there have been artists, musicians, as you say, dancers, others who have said, you know, we should have been a part of that. If that's unclear and that was the author's intent and we can build a consensus for that, we can probably go back and do that. But there may not be as much incentive currently because of litigation, because of the ballot measure. Um, and I think these things would be better uh, negotiated uh, through the legislative process as AB5 was, right? For everyone who was afraid of Dynamex, uh, AB5 addressed many of those concerns. Doesn't mean it's not fixable or more can be done. And again, I look at the Privacy Act that, you know, again, on, on initially we saw that there were more that need to be done and we came back and did that work. Um, and I'd hope something similar could happen with AB5. Another area you got some criticism from your rival, Barbara Bree, the other day was about, I guess it would be AB 392. This was the, the effort to more clearly define why or when officers can use lethal force against somebody they encounter and how that can be punished. And the Barbara's cons- uh, criticism was that you had only supported that after a compromise had been reached. And and I think I pointed out in others that that was your first opportunity to weigh in and vote on it. There are other ways, though, that you could have signaled support for that measure. Um, and it was easier after the police sort of came on board. Is, is, is there any way you would want to respond to that criticism that you waited till there was consensus? Well, I mean, I'm always... Um reluctant to opine on every Facebook post that happens, particularly those that are false, um, which this one unquestionably was. Right. Um, I would refer you to Dr. Weber. Mm-hmm. Um, she knows where I w- would have been um, before or after. I think she also knows where my opponent was on this before and after that vote. Um, 
But here's the thing, Scott. You know, as a member of the of the legislature, particularly as a member of leadership, as the majority whip who's responsible for helping assemble votes to pass these pieces of legislation, you know, it's often a part of my strategy to be able to speak with members and have a candid conversation with them about where they're at and sort of share my own views and, and help to build the consensus. That's part of my job. And so, um, you know, I, I'm very comfortable that with my conversation with Dr. Weber in advance of the pass of this legislation, legislation I'm quite proud of. And um, forgive me if I bristle at the suggestion of its watering down. This is a historic accomplishment um, of a talented legislator. And I would caution anyone from suggesting that it's less than uh, what it is, which is a substantial improvement. Yeah, that seems like careless language to have said that it was watered down into making this criticism of you. But um, uh, I don't even know if she could identify how it was supposedly watered down, but it doesn't seem like it was changed so dramatically to have changed the the uh, the value or the principle behind it. It was changed, but not... It, it was changed, but in furtherance of what I think Californians would want, which is to bring people on both sides of the table together and get <clears throat> forward progress. You know, yeah, there are people in this campaign, in this race, um, that take fairly absolute positions and, you know, want to ban this and that and, and, and take these extreme positions. I don't think that's where people are. I think they want government to work. They want decision makers to come together and build a consensus. And that's what Dr. Weber did on this incredibly sensitive, very difficult issue um, that people, frankly, didn't think was going to be possible. And again, given the position I hold in the legislature, I'm Proud to have been a part of a team that helped make that possible. This is 100% Dr. Weber's achievement, uh, and she should be quite proud. And I'm glad to see the the kudos that she has earned, including Person of the Year of the UT. But I don't think someone else should take that historic accomplishment and try and appropriate it for their own political purposes while simultaneously uh, criticizing it as watering down. Um, it's a devaluement of Dr. Weber and the role that she's played and what is unquestionably going to save lives. Um, so I'm proud to have voted for that bill. I'm proud to have been a part of the process of it. Uh, and I think we should do more important pieces of legislation. I think we should have more of those candid conversations that might take desperate groups who may seem to not have anything to agree with and get them to the table and get them to agree. Um, you know, I've coined this term of San Diego special. I mean, the, this kind of everyone standing in their corner and nothing gets done approach is precisely what I think is one of the biggest problems in this region. And I'm running for mayor to break that, to be able to build the consensus that actually gets big things done. And Dr. Weber did that, and she deserves uh, our respect and our praise. Not unrelated, um, one of the endorsements that sort of stands out that you haven't gotten yet is the endorsement of Monica Montgomery on the city council. Um, there are, It seems like Barbara Bree was actually trying to maybe – capitalize on on uh, a world of, of people who are very worried about criminal justice and criminal justice reform. And, you know, she's obviously trying to speak to them in a way and, and unite uh, a movement around that. And, and so I wonder if you feel like you do have some deficiencies in, in connecting with people who are worried about black and brown lives and their encounters with police officers. Are you um, are you, do you feel like there is a crisis that needs to be dealt with to the extent that many of them do? Yeah, I do. My vote for AB 392 shows that. Uh, my sponsorship of Measure G in 2016, which was the most recent uh, reforms uh, to the police review board, uh, shows that. Uh, the accountability and uh, measures I attempted at both at the city level and at the state level uh, around policing, particularly with new technology, show that I get it. 
Um, I have a track record that I will stand behind when it comes to this issue. But better than that, Scott, I have lived experience in this. You know, I'm a man of color, right? If elected, I'd be the first person of color to be to serve in the mayor's office. Um, and so it isn't a vote. Um, it's the lived experience of knowing what it is to operate in the world as a, as a person of color, to have had the conversation with your parents about how sometimes the world isn't fair and you need to adjust accordingly, uh, to go to stores and be followed because something about my personal appearance may suggest that I'm something that someone should worry about. Um, I've lived this. Um, and, uh, uh, I, I, I hope to be able to lead on it. Um, I think that that's the importance of having more people at the table um, with lived experience that can talk to people about it and bring folks together. I, I, in this election, I enjoyed the endorsement of our Police Officers Association and of Dr. Shirley Weber, uh, two groups that are seen as being on opposite sides of an issue, um, but both agree that I'm best suited to be the next mayor of San Diego. And I'm hopeful that if they can agree on that, we can agree on other things that can help improve the situation and give people a greater sense that policing is fair uh, and that the ex execution of justice in our neighborhoods is one that they can uh, feel good about. There looks like, I think there's going to be a measure on the November ballot that would allow uh, oversight groups outside of the police department to have subpoena power to investigate the police and complaints about the police. Is that something you support? I support an independent review board. And mm -hmm. I, my understanding is this is, uh, being negotiated currently. Um, and so I look forward to what that uh, final product will look like. But um, I've been clear, I support an independent review board and I'm hopeful that we will get something on the ballot so we can address this. Uh, and you know, if 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 approved, uh, I would be the mayor that would get to, and, and if approved and if I'm elected, I get to be the mayor that implements it. And I look forward to doing that faithfully. Including uh, subpoena power? I think that's an important component of this. Got it. Um, on, lastly, on Sacramento, and then we'll drill down locally, uh, SB 50 is back. Yes, and it is. This would be the measure that, at least in its previous incarnation, would have um, basically said that around a transit stop or a transit hub and around areas or in areas of high employment and good schools, then uh, cities would not be able to block development of four or five-story housing units and or housing projects. And uh, it was it would be transformational, I think. It would basically say you can get those kind of projects done a lot easier. And it didn't make it through the Senate last year. They put it on hold to put it through this time. You probably don't have to deal with it as a vote until maybe the summertime. But it's, you know, it's a real interesting moment for it. Now, they've, there's been some tweaks. I don't quite understand the tweaks. Maybe you can explain them. Um, if not, I, we'll, we'll all wait for it. But I think... You were kind of hesitant to embrace it before, and I guess the tweaks haven't really won you over yet? Uh, well, like you, I'm trying to understand yeah. what those do. And on their face, I would say no, but I, I, have, I owe some due diligence. Probably more important than that, uh, this is still several steps away from coming to the assembly. I, its first stop in the assembly will likely be the Housing and Community Development Committee, of which I serve upon. And so um, I have shared my observations about what I think uh, could be done to SB 50 to make it better. Um, and that's things that are really come from the communities I represent and chatting uh, with neighborhoods and, and constituents that I serve. Uh, you know, I, I think a couple things. Um, you, the 
the, the distances uh, from transit stops, I think, are pretty important. Uh, we're currently constructing the Midcoast Trolley Extension up through Pacific Beach and Claremont up to the UTC Mall. And my constituents in Pacific Beach have rightly pointed out that, you know, a quarter mile from transit encompasses larges, large portions of their community. Unfortunately, they have to walk around the I-5 freeway, which is way more than that distance. And I think that's a fair observation. I think it should be measured how you actually have to navigate that distance as opposed to as the crow flies. Um, another thing is, you know, it's sort of shaped by my experiences. I was elected in 2008, height of the Great Recession, um, and we were cutting a lot of bus service at MTS. Uh, I remember reducing, almost eliminating Sunday bus service. And so it's important to me that if a project was uh, authorized under this authority, under this bill, um, that that transit be there, be there for the long run. I realize nothing's uh, uh, guaranteed forever, um, but there has to be some ability for us to stand behind and say that if a building went in, that it will continue to be served by high quality transit as described in the measure. Um, and then importantly, I think context matters. Um, and this is a part of what I think Senator Weiner has done uh, with his recent amendments, um, which is to say that you know a five-story building on Adams Avenue um, is is would be a significant change. A five-story building on University Avenue wouldn't be as much of a change. A five-story building on Elkhorn Boulevard is probably too short mm -hmm. uh, in certain sections. And so that kind of context matters. If, if, if from a YIMBY perspective of making sure we're not leaving capacity, let's say on Elkhorn Boulevard, uh, for a more concerned position of, of Adams Avenue. You know, when I was serving on the city council, we were being sued over authorizing a three-story building on Adams Avenue. Um, so there's a lot of details in there. And that's what I love about the legislative process is there's so many steps along the way. You can continue to work on this. It may be that those all get resolved in the Senate before I ever see it in the Assembly Committee. It may be that it dies on the Senate side again. Um, but what I applaud Senator Weiner for doing, which I think is really important, and this is true for a mayoral candidate, is that San Diego, as you know, and as you've covered, is passing a lot of important and progressive reforms on housing production. That is not true across the state. And it is not San Diego's responsibility to solve the statewide problem by itself. Every community must do its fair share. And so while some in this campaign have criticized that I'm even willing to consider, or in some cases vote for bills like SB 330, it's done with the belief, much like when I was on the city council, that when people would say, well, we want to put new development in your community because that's a transit corridor. Elkhorn Boulevard is a transit corridor. Well, I happen to believe there's a lot more than just one transit corridor, and those happen to be other council districts, and I'll support it in my community, but I got you got to support it in yours as well. I think this is the case when it comes to statewide legislation of this kind. We see cities up and down the state who are flouting state or ignoring their responsibilities, enjoying the benefits of good jobs coming in their communities and then shoving people out uh, as soon as the office door closed. Every community has to do its part to the extent that SB 50 could help facilitate that. I think that's good because San Diego is going to do its fair share, but so should other cities. Hmm. Underneath SB 50 is a principle or a assumption. And the assumption is that the politics of a local community are such that it's basically going to be impossible for somebody in your type of a position or a city council person to support added housing. It's just that the, 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 the physics of local control and local um, interests and, and housing and, and homeowner interests are so intense that it's just too hard and that the state should, should handle it itself. Uh, an extreme example is in Japan. Japan doesn't have local control like that and, and has uh, a lot of housing <laughs> that's very tall. <laughs> but the, that's the basic idea around that. Is that an idea that you agree with, that it's just too hard 
for a local community. And you've had pressures that you've had to deal with around those areas that have probably led you to be perhaps more conservative on some of these decisions than maybe you might internally feel. Is it is it possible to overcome that? Well, it is at the local level. It is. Um, you, know, you see that in San Diego. I mean, the, when uh, the parking minimum ordinance was considered, the council managed most of the votes to do it. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, so, you know, there's evidence of this occurring. I think the concern I have is that's not true across the state. And whether it's a lack of, of I don't want to say courage. I mean, if, if it follows the plan and it's a good project, you should vote for it. I mean, if they're just ignoring their own rules, uh, that's problematic and that results in litigation. And so there's there's reasons to do this. But um, I think there is a, a piece of this that what we're trying to say is that this is a statewide problem. Your listeners probably know where California is the fifth largest economy in the world. Uh, we're the richest state in the union, and yet we have the hard, highest poverty rate in the union. And the reason for that is our housing crisis. And so it is a statewide concern. Therefore, there's statewide uh, actions that are necessary. And we have done a lot on the funding side. We've sent a lot of money to cities. We've done other sort of incentive-based stuff. But there also has to be something out there for the Huntington Beaches of, of the state, the Cupertinos who are happy to welcome Apple's spaceship headquarters building, but aren't willing to take a dead mall and put uh, a bunch of housing units there, housing units that are allowable under the plan, but they can't get the, uh, the, the, the votes together. And that may be making your point that it uh, it requires maybe some other action. But I would say that going back to the San Diego example, we have seen projects proceed. Um, and I guess that's kind of what voters are going to be tasked with looking at, particularly in 2020. Do you have people on the ballot who recognize this for what it is, which is a crisis? Um, are they willing to do what it takes to make sure, not that developers make a bunch of profit. I don't care about their profits. What I care about is whether or not people have roofs over their heads at prices they can afford. Um, and if the project's good, I would support it. If the project's terrible, I'd be the first to vote against it. Um, but ultimately, this is a statewide problem. It does require some state action, and it remains to be seen if SB 50 is the right intervention from the state. I think SB 330 was sound policy, and I was proud to vote for it. Um, others disagree with that vote, um, but I, I would challenge them to suggest to me why it's okay to change a fee uh, on a project, why to delay reviews, not approval, just reviews, um, and why it's okay to downzone in the middle of this kind of crisis, particularly yeah. the homelessness crisis we're dealing with. There's another sort of strain I don't know if it's picking up steam, but it's it's definitely an extremist or extreme position that is really provocative to me. And this is the idea that single family home zoning mm-hmm. or even zoning at all is a relic or a, a connected to redlining of the past that was very uh, clear distinction of where people of color could live and where they couldn't live. And that single family home zoning is a is a descendant of that that is still protecting these neighborhoods from integration and that any form of protecting single-family home zoning is itself a form of segregation. Is that something that you find as provocative as I do? I mean, that seems very interesting. Is there a place in in your worldview for protecting single-family home zoning, though, from, you know, these kinds of big changes? Well, that narrative does resonate for me because I think we do know the history and folks who maybe not even policy nerds like you and I probably know about some of this stuff. Um, I I do find it a bit provocative. um, And, you know, to the extent that there are single family uh, communities uh, into the future, I think that would largely be because 
we I don't support building anything anywhere. Uh, you know, we have climate goals. Uh, we have wildfire issues. We have a number of reasons why we need to focus development other places. So uh, placing high rises out in the back country is, is not the solution in my mind. Um, so I, I think that uh, it, it, the the right kind of housing, particularly the right price, the right at the right price, is the focus. Um, and I'd also would point out that uh, the accessory dwelling unit legislation that we've passed over the last number of years uh, in Sacramento that has sparked a renaissance in this space and um, doing I think a lot for inventory as well as helping people move into home ownership because of the ability to um, rent out these uh, accessory dwelling units. You know, we passed a bill that allows them in single family zoning across the state. And so one would argue we're almost there already. Um, but I think, again, concentrating large amounts of density or new density far into these bedroom communities that are not well served by transit um, are not necessarily serving the the affordability goals and the sustainability goals that, that are, uh, I think, priorities, certainly for me, that are priorities for our climate action plan uh, and necessary if we want to tackle uh, our housing affordability crisis. Mm. Switch to homelessness. There's no poll that's out there that doesn't show homelessness at the top of concerns. There's obviously a tremendous amount of angst from Encinitas down to South Bay. It's just an ex- it's just a horrible situation, and it continues to really do violence to everybody's conscience as they're walking around. It's just a it's it's bad. Now every chance you get. Um, to talk about the homeless navigation center downtown that was put up by the city, managed by family health centers in East Village at the old indoor skydiving facility, you point out how uh, reckless and inappropriate that was. Would you shut that down when you become mayor, or if you do? Well, <laughs> you know, I, I could answer that question if I knew the length of the contract that was okay. given. Uh, you know, we don't, but we don't if you had the power. Um, I don't see it as a best practice. And what do I mean by that? I mean, navigation centers certainly have value. What's unique about this navigation center is it doesn't feature housing. Um, and Or shelter of any kind. Yeah. Shelter of any kind, correct. Uh, and that's problematic. I mean, I was listening to the State of the City address yesterday. I mean, there may be some confusion about what ends homelessness, but housing ends homelessness. Uh, and to invite people to travel down to Imperial Avenue to, for intake and then to be sent right back out because there's no place to put them um, is insane uh, to me. Um, and so I, I think it was a missed opportunity. It's a three-story building. It's tens of thousands of square feet large. Um, $300,000 or more was spent to improve the building, to convert it from one use to another. Uh, and it doesn't seem to be operating at its highest and best use. And of course, there's the questions about the price that was paid and the fact that it was not an independent appraisal and seems like it was basically twice as much as what it's worth. Um, I think it's emblematic of the approach that has been taken for too long when it comes to homelessness, which is seeking a shiny object to point to, you know, a ribbon cutting to be had to show progress on an issue that is people are understandably upset about and they want to see progress. Scott, for me, I think having worked in this space for a very long time, long before we got to where it is now, you know, I remember being a fairly lonely voice on the city council trying to bring more attention to this issue. Um, We're not going to solve this with a lot of ribbon cuttings. We're going to solve this through really difficult work, you know, of building, you know, uh, databases that work in real time, of coordinating with providers to make sure they're not duplicating services, holding providers accountable to not just 
tell us about the fun anecdotes about one individual who made it, but really showing us that they're getting more than a number of people off the streets and keeping them off the streets. This stuff is not conducive for a photo op, but I believe that this path is the right one because what people are looking for are not photo ops, they're looking for progress. And while the current, the most recent point in time count you know, it was relatively flat. One could argue that's because the methodology was was changed. And I certainly would encourage any ele- elected leader that's suggesting that this problem is getting better, not worse. Go talk to an average San Diegan and let them tell yeah. them whether or not it's getting better or worse. Uh, I, I want to be a mayor that brings the city to join the ranks of cities across the nation that have ended chronic homelessness. And we will not do it with indoor skydiving facilities that don't shelter anybody um, that are seen to have wasted millions of dollars. Um, and so I think we can do better, we must do better. The goal and the objective is to uh, end this problem in our community. Um, and uh, it'll be the top priority of my administration. There's been several large tents set up uh, for, as they call it, bridge shelters, bridge to something. And the, you know, there I saw a count the other day that said that downtown used to have a thousand people who were homeless. It's down to 600, it seems pretty, corresponding to the fact that there's 400 uh, beds in these places. Uh, And so there's talk about putting another one up in partnership with the county. Do you think there should be a bunch more or at least a few more or one more? Um, Bridge shelters do serve a purpose, but it's it's obvious and um, implicit in the name that it's a bridge to something else. And I think the challenge the city currently sees is that isn't necessarily the bridge to other places. We have to really build out that system. So as we're standing up these tents or these shelters, you know, where's the corresponding effort to create more permanent supportive housing that can allow these folks to graduate out and uh, eventually, hopefully, for those who are able to be self-sufficient. Um, I think it's clear that we don't have a good answer to that right now. And importantly, the funds that are used to build permanent supportive housing are being used for the temporary shelters. And so this is the kind of... Um, thing I'm talking about where it feels as though we're 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 doing the what the, the what what seems necessary at the moment in, in 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 acting without kind of giving a full thought to what's going on you know I uh I have I recognize that shelter tents are not how cities across this nation are ending chronic homelessness I recognize that they are certainly better uh than a sidewalk a canyon an alleyway um but we have to do the difficult work of finding the permanent funding sources to construct the housing that will actually end homelessness and the conversations with communities who have large populations of unsheltered people but don't have any housing in their community, don't have any services, and see that as a responsibility for downtown. Every community has to do its fair share because, frankly, there are homeless people in every community. Um, And that's some of the things that I think are missing currently and something that I would like to lead on uh, if given the opportunity to serve as mayor. Hmm. You've gotten some criticism, and the UT really picked up on this for a while. Uh, Barbara Bree hit you the other day for it, that you promised to end homelessness downtown. Um, You know, I, I, I thought that it's fine to have large aspirational goals that you're always driving to. I mean, you know, my board and I say voice needs to reach X number of people. That's pretty hard to imagine ever happening, but we're going to always continue to drive to that. So I'm fine with that. But, you know, you have heard a lot about that. And and what, you know, what what is it going to take to have a significant dent on that? You've, you and your rivals in this race 
all agree at least on one part of that homeless plan, which is that there's needs to be about 3,500 permanent supportive housing units. Do we have the space for those? It seems like the money is one thing, but do we have the actual space to put those? Of course we do. Yeah. 3,500 space. I mean, when evenly distributed across our community, I mean... Well, I, I know that like, there's physical space. Yeah. Do we have the space within the regulatory environment and the efforts to protect neighborhoods, all those things? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. I mean, if, man, I mean, this is, this is an ongoing conversation. When you look at the, the potential under existing and adopted community plans, I mean, you see thousands of units that are allowable in many communities. Is it going to be easy to do? Is it potential for litigation? Are there finite resources? Those are all true things. Um, but we could do this. And by the way, we can do that also for working middle class people. Question is, you know, are we are we willing to, to do it? Um, and I'm saying explicitly that I am. Um, you know, the city is extremely adept at building market and luxury rate housing. We got thousands of those units, right? What we have is a very few amount of low and very low income homes and nearly nothing in the middle. And so um, I understand the question. I just don't think anyone ever notices the fact that if you got a million bucks, you got plenty of options. But if you're just someone who gets up every day and goes to work, you have precious few. And for those who are the most vulnerable amongst us, there's even fewer. So we do have that. And I guess the question is, does the next person in the mayor's office see that, understand that, hear those, know those people, maybe experience it themselves? Um, this is a distinguishing characteristic in this race. And yes, I tend to set pretty lofty goals. Um, I don't think there's anything wrong with that, particularly on this issue, because whoever wants to criticize, you tell me how many homeless people you think is acceptable on the streets of San Diego. Because my answer is and always will be zero. And they can give a different number, but I will stand by mine. With regard to the criticism for the past effort what we did was have a concentrated effort over a very short period of time to show how many people we could get off the streets. And the answer was pretty astonishing. It was astonishingly efficient to get a substantial number of people off the streets in a short amount of time. And by extrapolating out from there, you could see how you could reasonably end it in a particular community. That was largely philanthropic and some redevelopment funds. Of course, redevelopment went away, which made this infinitely harder. And the philanthropic funds continue to support all this stuff. You know, my question for a lot of people who criticize this is how much did you invest in that effort? Or have you ever invested in that effort? I think the answer is numberly. They've yeah. never done anything. So my point is this. As mayor, my commitment will be to end chronic homelessness. And if we fall short of that goal, that will be regrettable, but it will certainly be better than if we aimed low and succeeded. All right. Measure C, the effort to expand the convention center, raise hotel taxes, you're on board. I'm all in. Do you have anything you want to say about how you would use the homeless money? They've deliberately set it up so that it's vague and, and allows the city council to use the money. Um, but I think that's kind of a, that's can be a feature or a bug of the, of the plan. Do you have plans for how it would be used? Well, I or? see it as a feature. Uh, and particularly because I'm someone who is critical of the existing approaches to homelessness in our city. You don't want to lock those in. Correct. I would like to reorient them to, uh, proven methods of ending homelessness. Again, when you look across the nation where we're seeing transformational change, uh, there are things like strong mayoral leadership, 
data-driven decision-making, real transparency, accountability. Um, there are some promising things here in San Diego, like uh, you know, temporary assistance, uh, security deposits, uh, things of that nature that those funds could be used to keep people from becoming homeless. I think one of the things that's really important for your listeners to know, the longer people stay in homelessness, the harder it is to get them out. And so if we can intervene quickly and relatively cheaply in order to save money in the long run, I will always sign up to do that. So I think that though, and, and by the way, a, a rental voucher or down, a security assistant, uh, there's no photo op with that, right? Again, that's yeah. my point is that it may not be tremendously obvious. We not, may not have a great press conference about it, but what San Diegans want is to see fewer people stand on street corners begging. They want to see fewer people sleeping in tents uh, along our uh, Caltrans right away. And so that's going to be our metric of it. But I like the flexibility. I think it's a feature. Um, we have to adopt to changing things. You know, imagine the flexibility of those dollars during the hepatitis outbreak. Imagine the flexibility of those dollars to have prevented hepatitis outbreak. And you will support the effort to raise a small property tax to fund a housing bond? Yes. Yeah. I see those as complementary, by the way. I, you know, you end homelessness with housing and services. And I think that uh, Measure C could provide substantial services money, uh, and you can marry it with the housing money uh, that would be in the November measure. And that's when you start taking quantum leaps towards ending chronic homelessness and really being a national leader when it comes to fixing this uh, terrible crisis. And you support raising the sales tax for MTS? Yes. I, again, complementary efforts um, in, in furtherance of what we need to do. San Diegans deserve a world-class transportation system. I think everyone knows that we don't currently have that. This is a step toward doing that. Um, you know, I support the five big moves. I think this is a down payment in that particular direction. Um, and I applaud the- He's referring to Sandeg Executive Director Hassan Akrata, who's laid out this idea of five big moves that would transform transit and and the relationship with roads around the county. Are you telling me not everyone knows the five big moves no, at this point? No, okay. I've been coached that <laughs> we need to do a lot more explaining. So uh, yes, uh, it is a, what the way there are there are specific components that are the five big moves. But I think broadly speaking, it's two things: it's a world class transportation system for San Diegans, where it's featured as a freedom of choice uh, right. for people to have real options when it comes from getting from A to B. And I think an MTS measure in November uh, would be a down payment on that, and a down payment that is critical for our quality of life and for our economy. Okay. Did you watch the Democratic debate the other night? Some of it. Did you see this video that came out after of the of Elizabeth Warren? Of course I did. And Bernie Sanders. Yes, and the Tom hot Stein. mic moment. Okay, which one of them are you? Elizabeth Warren calling out Bernie Sanders for calling, calling her a liar. Bernie Sanders for being flustered and, and saying... <laughs> Uh, okay, yeah, whatever. We'll talk about this later. Or Tom Steyer awkwardly like trying to figure out how to handle this situation. I'm a hundred percent not Tom Steyer. <laughs> let me just say, <laughs> that poor man. <laughs> See, I think I'm a hundred percent him. You go and like you're really good at mingling. I think because that's your job. This is, but I, whenever I go to like intervene in the mingle that's going on, you can't easily extricate yourself. It's like trying to give high five, and nobody's there to like get you and you're like uh, hey and so i can see him there so you you'd say elizabeth warren or uh i'd like to think that you know i i um uh, hey you know what she's it's it's such an interesting dynamic right because you and it's yeah. it's not the best of this business right where you can say five minutes before this is my friend and right. then you go up and i think that that is um weird to people right it doesn't it doesn't seem authentic to them but at the same time it is actually authentic right in the sense mm -hmm. that she had a grievance and she took it up with him. Right away, and, yeah. Uh, 
I prize authenticity. I hope I bring a level of authenticity to this work. Um, people know where I'm at. They know who I am. I'm a pretty real person. Um, and so I, I guess her, yeah. um, uh, but, uh, uh, I think I might've been more mindful of the, of the hot mic. <laughs> uh, did you pick a new presidential candidate to support? I have not, uh, so you were supported Kamala Harris. That didn't work out. One thousand percent. I think she would have been an incredible president. So you she may be a great anyone. VP. Yeah. Uh, no, haven't switched yet. I mean, they. Will you before the primary? I don't know. You know, have they asked? They do. You know, so for your listeners who may not ever get this experience, they call. It's pretty. It's pretty wild. You know, I like Bernie himself, or like not Bernie, Bernie but some Elizabeth, of them have yeah. called. Yeah, and um, and you might. I mean, I might be at the house vacuuming my carpet, listening to the Voice San Diego podcast, and mm-hmm. then there's Pete Buttigieg on your phone, and you're like, well, hey. And okay. um, I think the good news is is that they all strike me as incredibly decent human beings who are undeniably an improvement over the incumbent. Um, I think like most people, certainly most San Diegans, we need to make a change. Um, and I say that as someone who hopes to lead this city and wants to have a competent uh, partner uh, in the federal government to help us solve big issues like the Tijuana River Valley uh, problems, cross-border commerce uh, and transportation infrastructure, we need a, uh, a competent uh, professional in that job. And what I can say from the conversations I've had with a number of them, uh, we're going to be in certainly better hands. I think I'm interested in knowing who can win um, and frankly, whose issues most align with me. And again, based on the conversations I've had, almost all of them recognize that homelessness and housing are huge issues and are willing to make a greater federal commitment to solving it. Um, seem to like infrastructure, despite everyone always claiming it's not sexy, they seem to get that part of it. Um, and certainly all of them believe that climate change is real, human-made, and that the federal government has a, a responsibility there. So all of its potential improvement, I just don't know who that person I might land on. Um, and I appreciate the ones who've come to San Diego. Um, it's important to me that folks realize that there are millions of people south of LA who uh, live vibrant and really cool lives and the, the president needs to come down yeah. here and see that. It's so interesting to me, like Gavin Newsom, he's been down here so many times and I, I don't remember you know, how often Jerry Brown came down or Diane Feinstein, people like that. It's just like I never saw him, but Newsom's here a lot. It makes a difference. It, I'm glad, I know that you know that. I'm, yeah. I'm glad you can say that for your listeners to know that. I certainly believe that. And I, one of the pieces of the work I do now in the legislature and that I'd hope to continue to do as mayor is that, you know, Scott, a lot of people, if you were to ask them up in Sacramento, what's the second largest city in the state, they would say San Francisco. And we are literally double their size. And so that says to me, we have a lot of room for improvement when it comes to the stature of the city. Uh, of our presence and people knowing uh, that we're here and what our issues are. And, uh, you know, I've spent my career serving my hometown, doing my best to advocate for these issues. Um, I think the, that advocacy has been made better by my time in Sacramento and understanding and meeting these players and being able to advocate. Um, I love that Governor Newsom has been down here so many times. It makes me think that some of this is paying off. Um, and I would hope for a similarly uh, competent and, and uh, useful relationship with the next president of the United States. Todd Glory, thanks for coming in. Thank you, sir. Thanks for listening to this Voice of San Diego podcast bonus episode. You can keep up with all of our political coverage with the Politics Report newsletter. Get that at vosd.org slash newsletters. We'll be dropping another bonus episode in this feed soon, so keep an eye out for that. And I'll be back with Andy Sarah, and all of our good cheer on Friday for our weekly show. I'm Scott Lewis, CEO and Editor-in-Chief. This show is produced by Nate John Megan Wood and Adriana Heldes, and it's recorded in the Voice of San Diego podcast studio, which is sponsored this year by the Bob Nelson Charitable Fund. 
Thanks for listening. Talk to you soon.